today for the Missouri Audio Project, we're bringing you a few selected clips from an interview with Scott Carrier. I'm Abby Avrigania. I didn't think I'd be someone who makes radio, but then I started listening to it all the time, talking about it all the time. It reached the point where it'd be stupid if I didn't make radio. But I'd never heard of Scott Carrier until the Missouri Audio Project brought him to Columbia in the fall of 2016. He's an independent writer and radio producer. His work can be heard on NPR, This American Life, and his podcast, Home of the Brave. Carrier was interviewed about his decades-long radio career by Yulia Supis, co-founder of the Missouri Audio Project. They talked in front of a live audience. First up, a favorite story of both mine and Yulia's, the blind dog. When I heard this story for the first time, I, I sort of whipped my head around and I was sitting beside Andrew Leland, who was my partner in crime in this project for a long time. And I said that. I want to make stuff like that. Oh, huh. Yeah, I didn't tell you that part. Huh. So I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play a piece of the of the blind dog story so that everybody can hear it. It was the piece that really, for me, kind of encapsulates something intangible and something sort of quirky and beautiful and like weirdly profound about the way that you work. It's, uh, it's uh, about 1989, and I had this idea to. Uh, float down the Green River in sections and interview people I met along the way and uh, send in stories along the way. I mean, I'd float a section, come back to Salt Lake, produce a couple of stories, and then go back and float uh, a couple other sections. And so I would do a, a series through the summer for a weekend, all things considered. And they said, yeah. So um, that was the idea for the story. Float down the Green River in my canoe and interview people along the way. And pretty much the first trip, I, the place where I was getting out to come get picked up by my friends was in Daniel, Wyoming. And it's a, maybe five people live there and they have a bar, the, you know, the Green River Bar in Daniel, Wyoming. So it was noon, I went into the bar, called my friend. He said he'd be up in five hours. <laughs> you know, that's how long it takes to get up, drive up there. And, uh, I was looking at the pictures behind the bar on the wall of this German shepherd ca jumping up and catching a frisbee, and the dog was right behind me, sitting on the sleeping on the floor. It was, kind of, it was hot summer, and the, it was a concrete floor. It was cool, and the dog looked up at me when I walked in, and I would turn around, and look at it, and it would look up at me, and so I was talking to the bartender. I said, "Oh, your dog likes to catch the frisbee." And he, she said, he sure does, don't you, Fritz? And then he looked up and was looking at her. And I said, yeah, I had a, a friend whose dog loved catching the Frisbee so much it ruined his hips and couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore because uh, he was jumping up and really high jumping and landing and it just hurt his hips. And she said, well, Fritz had his eyes removed or had an eye disease called Panis and had to have his eyes removed and I said so those pictures are from before he got sick and she said oh no these pictures are from after he had his operation and the best line is, is when you say so he's blind so he's blind and she yeah. goes yeah. well he has no eyeballs so he's blind yeah so yes right <laughs> so I, yeah I, I forgot yeah I, 
<laughs> right, that's in, I told this, you told it much better. Than I did, so. I've been studying you. Yeah, yeah. So, so she said, do you want to go out and see? And I said, yeah. So we went out in the yard. She had a big open grassy yard in front of the bar. And she threw the frisbee. Okay, and so we can listen. Okay. We can listen to this piece now. So right. this, so we're at the point, I think we're at the point where she's throwing the frisbee, maybe. Okay. In any case, this is what happens. He was standing there between us, and I was holding the microphone up to Pat, and suddenly he jumped up and bit down on the end of the microphone. Oh, Fritz, easy. Oh. He thought the microphone was the frisbee. I don't know how else to explain it. And even then, I can't explain how he knew to bite that spot. Microphones don't make sound. They record sound, although it never worked very well after that. A dent in metal screen. Now it sits on my bookshelf with a thousand-year-old arrowhead, a photo of an Eskimo in a kayak, and some rocks from Yellowstone Lake. Sometimes I show it to people. See this dent? It was made by the tooth of a blind German shepherd who thought it was a frisbee. <laughs> he would run around in a circle. It was like a 20-foot diameter circle, and she'd throw it kind of timed when he was coming, but still, it wasn't always the same elevation. It always wasn't in the same place. He was somehow sensing the position of that Frisbee, and she said it was through his hearing, which, um, I mean, she knows much more than I do, but it just looked really amazing at the time, and then she could throw it, and he could go find it. And then that she has the dog sort of go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wait, and, and you're talking. chatting. While we're talking, my, the mic. I think he thought I was holding the Frisbee, and he just bit right there. Right on. And it's this great moment, like it's this great audio moment because you there's a <laughs> right. What I what I love about the way that you read that moment, you sort of you it's it's this mystery, right? You sort of microphones don't make sound. Right. Microphones collect because sound. Because she was saying he hears. That's yeah. how he, he catches the frisbee is through hearing. Yeah. And and the way that the microphone then becomes this sort of relic. If you don't really know Carrier, I'll bring you up to speed. Some of his stories are like personal essays. Some explore the relationship people have with animals and with land. And some are deeply rooted in exploring social issues. You did some work on the Mexican-American borderlands. It's a story for which you won the Peabody Award. It was a sort of collaborative piece, right? What I'm interested in is to what extent do you consider, like to what extent is your job to bear witness how important is this kind of work of going and talking to people? Well, we'll hear the piece, and then we'll talk. Out in the Sonoran Desert, home of the saguaro cactus and Gila monster, 20 people are getting into the back of a pickup truck. Mostly teenage boys, two women, the rest men. They're Mexicans, and we're in Mexico two miles south of the border at Sasabe, Arizona. It's 10.30 in the morning, close to 100 degrees. In a few minutes, the truck will take them to the barbed wire fence on the border, and they'll begin walking north. My partner, photographer Julian Cardona, asks them what part of Mexico they come from. Can you tell us the of Mexico? Veracruz. Oaxaca. Veracruz. Oaxaca. There's a Mexican border agent with us, Beta Group Officer Carlos Ozaya Moreno. He's got a uniform, he's got a badge, 
But his job is not to apprehend these people, it's to assist them in their journey. He says, are you guys prepared? You have water, food? You realize you're going to have to walk for a long time, maybe for hours, maybe for days. You're going to have to walk at night. He tells the group if they get into trouble to contact his office. Beta group can help. The men and boys nod, but in a few minutes they're going to be in the United States, and in a few hours it'll be 115 degrees in the shade. And what can Beta Group do for them then? So, can we see what you have, what, what you're going to carry with you? Water. Sardine, water. Suero is water mixed with electrolytes. Ajo. Garlic. Garlic. Maybe you would. I have one more question. Are you very worried they might die? No. No. Life is that way. Life is that way. Yeah, that's Julian Cardona. So tell me about making that. Well, that piece. Um, okay, so I was blacklisted from uh, NPR for a while until Alex Chadwick, the guy who let me in the door in 1983, got his own show in Los Angeles called Day to Day. And one of the conditions of him doing that, of having this new job out in Los Angeles, was that he would be able to play my stories. He put that in like the agreement thing. It was very nice. And so he, when he got his show, he called me. He said, well, you should go down and do some stories with Charles Bowden, who lived in Tucson. He was an expert on the border region. He was an excellent writer, one of the best writers ever in America. And, uh, and I knew him. And uh, it was a good idea because nobody knew Bowden. Nobody knew his work, really. He's a print author. And so I started doing stories with Charles Bowden and Julian Cardona, who was a photographer that Chuck worked with, Mexican, and lives in Juarez. And basically, that was Julian in the back of the truck with me, translating. And basically, I just put their work on the radio. That's, you know, both of those stories. There were two stories that ended up in, this in the show that won the award. The first one I couldn't have done without Julian. The second one I couldn't have done without Chuck. And the second one was on the American side. Is that the this one? Yeah. So um, Sasabi, Sasabi, uh, Sonora, and Sasabi, Arizona. Julian and I hung out in Sasabi through the day, and then followed a group uh, out of town that was going to cross the border in the evening as the sun was setting. We watched them walk away as the sun set. And I think there were 26, and there were three children or something like that. It was the number and the number of children was critical because after that, I got heat stroke. It was 105 degrees, and I was on Charles Bowden's floor for three days. I could not get up. And when I did, he said, well, let's go down to the bird refuge, which is right on the other side of Sasabi, Sonora. There's a U.S. Fish and Wildlife reserve there called the Buenos Aires uh, Reserve and uh, he happens to be on the board of directors because he's a bird expert and he's a big man, was a big man in Tucson and so we walked in and it's like holy shit that's Bowden so what do we, you know Mr. Bowden what, how can we help you and it's like well this guy's working on a radio story maybe and I said well I'd like to talk to a, a security officer uh, basically a border patrol for the refuge and they said, certainly, here's one right here. He sat down and, you know, he was told to cooperate with me, which never would have happened if I wouldn't have been with Bowden. He never would have done it. They never would have done it. So he starts describing, I said, tell me, uh, describe your day. 
when did your day start? And he said, well, it started two days ago, 48 hours ago. I, and he starts looking at his notes. He's like, I got up, did calisthenics, and uh, went outside my house because he and his wife and their five kids live on the bird refuge in a place where uh, people are walking across the desert all the time. And he said he went outside the house, and he, either right outside his house or someone told him there were a group of people that were digging in the dirt. They were naked and digging in the dirt. And that's the last stage that you go through before you die of dehydration and a heat stroke. Take off your clothes and dig in the dirt to try to get down to cooler ground. And so he found these men. I think there were five guys. I can't remember. They were naked, and they had you know, dirt in their eyes, dirt in their nose, dirt in their mouth, dirt everywhere. And they were very close to death. And he told them they had started four days earlier with a group of 26, including three babies. And they didn't know what happened to the women or kids. So he's sitting there telling me that. I was like, well, what? And even if it wasn't the exact same group, it was a group, where were the women and kids? If the men were in that condition, if you're a border patrol, even now, down there, um, it's not a job that many people can take for very long because they'll start following tracks and they're kid tracks. They're following, you know, size six kids' shoes across the desert. This big shoe tracks, and they know when those tracks end, there's going to be a body there, and it happens. People die out there. It's probably still every day, but at that, that time it was like the height, 2005. All right, that's enough on that subject. I can feel some gloom setting in here. Carrier took questions from the audience, and someone asked about objectivity in his work. Well, I try to be transparent, you know, to, to, to make it known where I come from, my perspective, my background and how I g obtain information. I think it's very important to know, for the listener or the reader, to know how the information was acquired, and that's so often left out. And so what I, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be transparent. If you're an independent writer, you have a responsibility to be a critic of your community, your culture, and your country, and to try to speak truth to power. It's a necessary component in any healthy democracy that someone is challenging the power structure, critically. Those were a few selections from Scott Carrier's interview with the Missouri Audio Project. I'm Abby Ivory-Ganya. Thanks for listening. AP Production, based in Columbia, Missouri, supported by KBIA.